to see the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really soak it? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Francesca, your host, and I have a very interesting guest lined up for today. We're going to be talking about domestic violence in the home with COVID-19 being so prevalent. Uh, But before we get started, if you want to chime in or comment on this show or the guests or the topic, send me an email at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. If you want to learn more about the show, you can visit my website, talkwithfrancesca.com. This portion of Talk with Francesca is sponsored by Jennifer Powell. If you're starting to notice fine lines and wrinkles, stubborn fat that won't go away, perhaps your body is trying to tell you something. Jennifer Powell RN has just the remedy for you, and you can visit her at jlprn.com to schedule your complimentary consultation today. Her team of specialists look forward to helping you understand your beauty from within. It may be a couple of weeks at least before you have an opportunity to see her, but I assure you that when you do, you'll be quite pleased. All right, then we are going to talk tonight about when staying home, when staying home isn't safe. About 90% of the United States has been ordered to stay at home for at least, well, another four to six weeks, probably maybe even a few months. And health officials say that it's the safest place for us, which we know is very, very true. But it might not be true for people experiencing domestic violence. An average of 24 Americans per minute are victims of rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner, according to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That's more than 12 million women and men over the course of the year. And now that we're all being told to stay at home, many of us are seeing more of our neighbors than we have ever before. What so? What should you do if you suspect someone is being hurt? Well, with us now by telephone is Suzanne Dubis, who joined the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center in 1995 and has served as its CEO since 1998. She is credited with developing and administering domestic violence prevention pro- programs that are effective, innovative, and community-based. So a big welcome to you, Suzanne. Thank you so much for joining us on Talk with Francesca. You are you are welcome, and I thank you for having me on the show and uh, for talking about this. You know, the more that we're able to talk about it, hopefully we can help more people. Yeah, it's a very, very scary time, and and we all feel so, we have so much anxiety and unsure of the future, and to have that piece of domestic violence in addition in your home and feeling trapped with that person must be just... I can't even imagine. I just can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, and you, you've perfectly described kind of the situation that survivors find themselves in, that, you know, under typical circumstances, when they're still going to their jobs, when their kids are still in school, when their abusers are off at work or living separately, um, and they have their social supports around them. You know, they're able to uh, go to their their faith-based communities and their right. their social networks and to be able to process kind of what is happening at home and what is happening in the relationship and what is scary and what is tolerable and to lose 
so much of that because they're under this kind of constant monitoring uh, is really not only difficult, but for many cases can be life-threatening. Right. So it's it's really a, a scary time for all of us. And, you know, I think about, um, well, we can talk about it later, but I, the only thing I really have to gauge any of this is, is the post 9-11 days. And, uh, and that, as frightening and scary and disruptive as that was, it was very different than a worldwide pandemic. And, and what way are you saying? Well, so post 9-11, I think the whole country was in shock mm. and people just tended and survivors of domestic violence victims uh, were not unlike everybody else in that they just kind of gathered their friends and family close to each other, um, that, that the situation they found themselves in except for the most violent um, escalating kind of abuse went on the back burner and people were just really focusing on surviving and making sure we were all safe and uh, but then within about two weeks I remember there was just an explosion of calls and people needing help in the courthouses and police responding to calls and I think the pandemic is a bit is similar in that way in that um, while there is this prediction that this is going to lead to some really horrible things happening and I 100% believe it but during the first two weeks of these stay-at-home orders things were kind of quiet you know the hotline Mm -hmm. was quiet and I think survivors were rightfully like waiting to see how Mm. how is it safe for me to get services if I'm being told to stay at home where am I going and how do I stay safe and not only am I looking to stay safe from my abuser I'm also looking to stay safe from the coronavirus and not infecting you know grandma or my kids or whomever and uh, so that's kind of what I was thinking about right and before you were the CEO of the Jeannie Geiger crisis center you were a survivor of domestic violence and so you more than anyone else really has a a handle on what that might feel like or what some of the the things that uh, women who have this situation at home are going through could you talk a little bit about your situation or what your situation was sure my my situation was uh, i was much younger i was in my 20s my whole family lived on the east coast and my husband uh, moved us out to the west coast and he was a commercial fisherman and he moved us to this off-season rental on the top of a mountain where we literally were the only people living there there was a small general store about a half mile from our little you know summer rental that we were renting year-round and when I began to describe and I didn't even make sense of it at the time but I was so isolated we didn't have a telephone um, we had one car, so if he needed it, he was gone for the day, and I was really just stuck in this little house. <sighs> and um, when I later, it took me about four years to get out uh, away from him and out of this marriage, but when I later on began to recall and think about the isolation, the loneliness, 
that uh, that I experienced. Plus, I also believed every terrible thing he said about me to me. I believed that this was the best I deserved, that I got what I deserved, that that um, if I were a better woman or a better wife or a better person, I would have a better outcome. And so I really began to believe all of that, which kept me even more isolated and mm-hmm. really ashamed of myself. Right. And so, you know, what liberation it was when I finally got out and got away and realized that none of that was true, but that isolation and that distance from my entire family helped me believe that. And so if I had had anyone in my life saying, you know, that's not true, right? Um it would have been helpful. So when I think about what we're all going through as a society, as a global society right now, and I think about um, women who are just instantly, just instantly with no warning shut off from their their support systems, that's what, that's what keeps me up at night because I feel like the challenge for domestic violence programs and, and other, there are so many other kinds of uh, helping groups out there that are touching the lives of survivors i think the call for us is so how do we how do we help survivors who are at home and for whom a technology may not be the best choice for them or if they're only getting out uh, and they're going to grocery stores and drug stores how do we how do we help through those channels um and I don't have the answer to that yet, but okay. but I feel like it's really um, calling us to think differently about our work and to show up in a different way. Right. And when we talk about domestic violence, let's really be more specific in terms of what it really, really is. I mean, of course, we know there's the physical abuse. Um, there's other types of abuse. There's, you know, when they're being tracked, uh, the financial abuse, restricting restricting one's access to funds, maybe even buying antibacterial soap. I don't know. Um, you know, there's, there's so many types, but maybe if you could just define briefly your definition, sure. right? Sure. That's a great question. So, and I'm really glad you asked it because so many people... Um, survivors included think if I'm not being physically harmed Mm. then is this truly domestic abuse and so domestic abuse can show up mentally I just I described for you the ways that my ex-husband would make me feel like less than human and uh, while he was physically abusive at times it was far less frequent than the emotional and mental abuse and that, so it is putting putting you down, it is name calling, it is, uh, you know, blaming you for everything uh, to the point where you start to take that on and start to believe all of those messages. It is the financial abuse that you already described. In my own situation, I was the person that had steady work and he didn't. And so he would march into my employment place of employment on payday and I would sign my check and he would take it off and he would take off with it and you know I might get $20 and 
uh, and the bills would go unpaid and it was it was just really economically so chaotic and scary and it just added to my sense that um, that nothing made sense um, so there's the economic abuse there's also we also have spoken to so many survivors who come from uh, really um, high net worth individuals who have no access to their money so there are um, also poorer women who are forced to do all the work and while their abuser does none. Um, so that, that's, that sense of this lack of justice, lack of fairness, lack of equality, uh, which is just pervasive. There is obviously sexual abuse, um, using sex as a tool, it's using children as a tool. Um, I know that specifically during COVID-19, I know that, you know, I've begun to already hear some of the stories about how, um, say, COVID-19, all right, so in one family, you know, grandma might be the the person that babysits so that mom can go work and mom feels really safe having the children at home with the grandma but now the husband's come in or the dad has come in and said you know you can't do that anymore because kids you're going to kill grandma so she can't come over here anymore and he begins to rest more and more control away from mom about how the kids are being safe. Um, there's other examples about how women are being forced to wash their hands and bleach uh, and being constantly accused of, you know, you're the one, you're the sick one, you're gonna make this family sick, you're gonna kill this family, so therefore I need to wash your hands and bleach. Um, so it's, it's pervasive and constant. Mm -hmm. It, it, and then yeah. there is the physical abuse as well. Of course, but, of course. Yeah. Suzanne, we do need to take a short break, but when we come back, yeah. I'd be curious to know if the police departments are reporting an increase in calls and, and also, you know, that survivors being in such close proximity, I would think that they would feel very unsafe reaching out and want to talk about the resources that are available right now. So listeners, stay with us here. Okay. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. This is Life of More talk with Francesca coming right up on 95.9 WATD. Looking for a unique experience to dining? Rio Brazilian Steakhouse brings an authentic Brazilian flavor with a great atmosphere to the restaurant scene in Plymouth. The interior is warm and welcoming, and the buffet style offers a relaxed atmosphere while offering fine dining with the traditional rodizio style from Rio, the heart of Brazil. Come dine and watch your dishes being prepared and cooked over the grill. Plymouth's best-kept secret, Rio Brazilian Steakhouse offers a full buffet daily, along with wine and beer. Rio Brazilian Steakhouse is located at 318 Court Street in Plymouth and is open seven days a week. For an unforgettable experience from start to finish, visit them at riosteakhouserestaurant.com. You'll be glad you did. Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafoods, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. 
Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia Restaurante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutoria with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Restaurante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit terramiarestaurante.com. Tides is beachside dining at its best, all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room in the pub can't be beat. Tide specializes in casual dining with food that's delicious, not pretentious. On a warm day, enjoy a frosty pint at their bar or their sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach. Or enjoy an incredible meal in their dining room anytime. Tides guarantees you great atmosphere with superior service. The menu at Tides is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out the drink menu at Tides for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is unbeatable anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit tidesnahant.com. Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca. On 95.9 WATD. Okay, we are back, and I'm speaking with Suzanne Dubis. She is the CEO of the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center in Newburyport, and we are discussing domestic violence, and in particular with what is going on um, all over the world with COVID-19. So welcome back, Suzanne. Thank you. So, Suzanne, um, first of all, have the police departments been reporting an increase in calls at all? Uh, you know, as I said earlier, mm. you know, there was this kind of quieting. Right. Uh, we have been reaching out to our local police departments, yep. and um, they are beginning to to rise. And one local police officer uh, told us that he felt that in the two cases he responded to uh, on Friday, he thought that it was because they had spent uh, too much time together and that the abuse was just ramping up and there was just no way for her to get away from it. Mm. And so she, he felt that it resulted in a call that normally might not have been made. But then where do these women go if, I mean, now they called the police on their husband, Right. Or, or it could be a husband calling the police on the wife as well. I mean, women abuse men as well. Um, but so what? OK, so now the police come. That just exasperates the whole situation because that person who is being reported, so to speak, is really out of control. And, and we know that domestic violence, the main thing there is, is control, right? Control and power. Right. right. Yeah. So so how does that play out? 
so a couple couple different things um so you asked and you also asked how do people get services mm. so i'm gonna play out the scenario you just said and then i'll get to the second part of the question so it's a great question because i think first of all this time is helping us tell the story about why it's so scary for women to call law enforcement or get outside people involved in uh, cases because she wants the abuse to stop she uh -huh. doesn't want to be hurt she doesn't want her kids to be hurt he might also be the breadwinner he might be the person that's that's keeping the food on the table and the roof over the head and and at least for now keeping coronavirus you know outside the house and um so as soon as she calls the police and the police get involved then one of two things are going to happen or maybe one of three things one they could remove the um the abuser from the household um which is going to start you know start the ball rolling in one direction so all of a sudden she may have lost the only income she had in the house um and, you know, it may have unintended consequences that she didn't really understand at the time. The other thing is, and then, then she's also waiting, and then what happens if I don't? This is just getting worse. If she does make a decision to leave, then the, her, you've asked the right question. So where does she go? What's happening? So shelters are still open. Uh, emergency assistance is still available. Um, virtually every domestic violence program in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is doing their level best to provide virtual services for advocacy, for emergency restraining orders. Um, the court systems are opening up helplines so that at least they can get those most urgent cases heard, um, even if it's just telephonic or through a video. Uh -huh. um, police are being asked to help with restraining orders um, in different ways as well. And, you know, even for us at the center, our first thought was, okay, so this is a reality. This is where our world is right now. How do we continue to provide really good services for survivors and so you know it was a bit of a trick because we've never thought that virtual services were going to be effective but it, it's good i mean it's it's not the best it's not ideal but we're doing i think a really good job under the circumstances and so people are still able to call our hotline uh, speak to an advocate speak to our lawyer um that we have a children's trauma program and so they're also working with children uh, so services are happening across the state like that <laughs> one thing that i would say to any survivors who are living at home right now and need to reach out for help but are also living with their abuser or maybe are in such tight quarters that they can't do they can't have a confidential conversation because maybe their kids would listen or other family members is if you have the opportunity to go to the grocery store once a week or to a pharmacy or to go get gas in your car um if it's safe to do so that would be a really good time to call a hotline mm -hmm. and to begin to gather some information about the resources that are available i'll also say that uh, the massachusetts um, 
Department of Health and Human Services is really doing a great job getting some funds out for uh, survivors and but more to fund programs so that we can provide an extra layer of uh, client assistance, you know, in the forms of housing, more food. Uh, so the resources are still there, and I think that's really important. I really want people to understand that while our physical offices are closed, we are open for business. And how does social distancing work at shelters? That's a great question. We don't have a shelter, but I I, I have a weekly call with um, the Massachusetts programs. Um, so they are really doing their best. First of all, they are, you know, they're. I think they're probably really, really good at keeping these quarters clean, clean, clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think with shelters, they're doing their best to rearrange sleeping quarters so that there's six feet apart. Um, I think people are going in for meals at staggered times so that there's mm-hmm. less people in a larger room. Um, and more isolation, for, though, right? Yeah, more isolation. <sighs> but to, you know, to kind of do this shared isolation, which is a little bit of a misnomer, but um, it's a it's a challenge and it's a it's a tricky thing that we're all learning about, you know, as we all are on a daily basis. But they're they're doing a really good job. And if one person gets the virus, I mean, it's just so darn contagious that, I mean, the whole shelter could end up getting it. Absolutely. And I think about, you know, I read the stories about the homeless folks, you know, and mm. how they're oh. just so vulnerable oh. and right. uh, because there's no place to hide and there's never enough beds. And it's a really, I, I think the coronavirus is really going to highlight such disparity um, throughout the nation. Yeah, I, you know, I was just walking my dog a little while ago. I was talking to a neighbor and I said, I wish we could find a silver lining here somehow, you know, because obviously the talk is all about, oh, this is horrible and, well, we're all so isolated. And, oh, we can't get, you know, and all these things. And trying to actually find something positive is is pretty challenging, you know. It's just, it's, but, you know, I mean, we do, we are in a time can you imagine if we didn't have the internet? Can you imagine if we didn't have, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, can Absolutely. you just imagine? I mean, we are so lucky. I mean, there's telehealth. One of my neighbors is a doctor and he was telling me that he, um, you know, sees his patients via Zoom, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so we are very, very lucky in so many ways. And but nonetheless, no matter you know, how lucky we are. I mean, this is still such a horrific, horrific time. And, and, you know, and going back to the domestic violence piece, obviously, I mean, talk about familiarity, breeding contempt. I mean, it has a whole, whole new meaning. Um, Suzanne, so what, what about victims who are in denial? What would you say to these folks who are turning a blind eye to it? Well, uh, you know, so as advocates, our the, our philosophy is always that, uh, for the most part, the survivor knows the best, and they have developed strategies to cope with uh, something that other people would really feel is uncopable. <laughs> you know, I know that's not a word. That's um, okay. <laughs> and 
so I feel like what, but I think what pierces uh, denial is when someone's pain is so great or the fear becomes greater than it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that's when people's perception about their own um, safety mm-hmm. uh, is called into question. And so I think our trick is the trick for us, for domestic violence advocates and community as a whole is really just to keep that bridge open because sometimes a survivor uh, seems to be in denial and the truth is what they're doing is surviving and they know what they need to do to get through today and to the outside to the onlooker it seems like denial and so one thing that I always tell people is just keep that bridge open let your friend or family member if you are seeing someone in this circumstance right now you know use the pandemic as a way to reach out and say hey I'm just checking in how's everything going do you need anything and uh, I think that knowing that domestic violence abusers are so successful because of the isolation and the pressure they put on their victims, we can be the counterbalance to that. We can be the people that, you know, call up and never talk about the domestic violence, you know, aren't putting them in a difficult position, but just simply letting them know that there's a warm, caring person on the other end. Right. And if you need anything, and I mean anything, please call me. Right. The, um, I don't really know where I cut and pasted this the other day when I was thinking about this show. I don't know if it was on Facebook or what, but I do want to read it because I think it really, really defines to the listeners sort of like what's going on here. And and at the top, it says, my husband just spit on me. It was a week in which our society plunged deeper into an unprecedented world of fear, mystery, disorientation, and general anxiety. The expression between a rock and a hard place has taken on a new level of meaning as we face decisions for which there are no easy answers. Not just the one we talked about last week in terms of lives versus livelihood, but now with the increase in state in state enforced lockdowns, the choice between civil liberties and public safety. Never before has the question, is the cure worse than the disease, taken on such significance. People are wondering, and rightfully so, what will the world be like when things is when this thing is finally over? Earlier today, I was looking out the window of my apartment where I'm isolating and working from home when I spotted a woman running into the parking lot from the building across the way, screaming into her cell phone, send the police here as quickly as possible. I'm in danger. My husband is out of control. He just spit on me. Within 10 minutes, the police arrived and short-circuited a potential incident of domestic violence exacerbated by a couple being cooped up together too long during the coronavirus panic. I thought that was really interesting, and I just... I felt like I had to be able to share that just because I really think it gives, you know, a, a real picture to people who maybe are not as familiar. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And the um, and I think that's true, you know, and I always t- think and talk about domestic violence as something that happens on a spectrum. And so on one end, you have couples who... Uh, Maybe, you know, they're they're not maybe not compatible that, you know, in order to be a successful relationship, they need some balanced time with each other and without each other. And those things tend to not be domestic violence, although there can be some abusive things that might happen between 
the, the spouses. And when we think about domestic violence, we always think about it as a pattern. And this is a pattern of intentional controlling uh, behaviors from the abuser toward the uh, abuse victim. And so I, I want to, I just wanted to throw that out there because I don't want uh, that kind of restlessness and impatience that we're probably all feeling about, you know, feeling a bit cooped up to be uh, tangled up with the idea of domestic violence. And so domestic violence is is truly, as you said earlier, you know, this is about power and control and, um, and how poignant that piece is just thinking about how for this woman, it was her husband studying at her mm-hmm. that she knew that something had turned, right. that this was not business as normal, not in their relationship and not in the world. All right. It was her tipping point for sure. I don't know who that yeah. was, but I'm glad to know that she was, she was saved. Um, we do need to take another short break. We're talking about how the coronavirus pandemic has created opportunities for abusers to terrorize their victims. When we come back, more to come. This is life to I'm Francesca Luca, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terra Mia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutorial with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Restaurante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit terramiarestaurante.com. Your pets are family. Take your dog to the Dog's Den in Pembroke. Your furry friend will go from smelling crummy to yummy because Leah at the Dog's Den really cares. Whatever your pet's needs are, from dematting to extra scissoring, the Dog's Den in Pembroke has your furry friends covered. So call the Dog's Den today at 781-826-7008 or visit thedogsdengrooming.com. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723. Or visit us at AnticoFornoBoston.com. Looking for a unique experience to dining? Rio Brazilian Steakhouse brings an authentic Brazilian flavor with a great atmosphere to the restaurant scene in Plymouth. The interior is warm and welcoming, and the buffet style offers a relaxed atmosphere while offering fine dining with the traditional rodizio style from Rio, the heart of Brazil. Come dine and watch your dishes being prepared and cooked over the grill. Plymouth's best-kept secret, Rio Brazilian Steakhouse offers a full buffet daily, along with wine and beer. 
Rio Brazilian Steakhouse is located at 318 Court Street in Plymouth and is open seven days a week. For an unforgettable experience from start to finish, visit them at riosteakhouserestaurant.com. You'll be glad you did. Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafoods, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. The talk continues on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Suzanne Dubis. She's the CEO of the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center in Newburyport, and we are discussing domestic violence in this horrible time with the COVID-19. Welcome back, Suzanne. Thank you. So in the wake of this these personal crises with people losing their jobs, major financial setbacks. There's got to be um, people who are drinking more, using drugs more. How does that play into domestic violence? Dare I ask? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because, I mean, I think what we know is the effect of drugs and alcohol is that, that any filters that people have tend to dissipate. And in some cases with uh, people, they get happier, they get funnier, they get you know more loose. Um, other people are just more of who they are. Um, while others will can use that as an excuse to inflict even greater harm and abuse on people. And I, I did see that great um, column in the Boston Globe last weekend about Uh, you know, calling for the closures of liquor stores in a way to Mm -hmm. help dissipate um, this perfect storm of forced togetherness, uh, introduce more alcohol uh, in an already abusive relationship, and nothing good is going to happen from that. And so... Uh, I can anticipate that I think, you know, here's what my fear is. My fear is now that the calls are starting to pick up and the police are responding to more calls and we're getting more calls on our hotline. My fear is that um, over this period of time, since we've all had this kind of stay at home order, that things have been ramping up and that the calls that we're going to begin to get are the result of more violence. Uh, more severity and something that is escalating and I just think in those cases uh, drugs and alcohol are going to make a really bad situation worse yeah this is there's there's nothing there's nothing good unfortunately that I can see coming out of any of this Suzanne is the current virus crisis um, which is expected to push the world economy into a recession, whether it does or not, is you know we still don't know. But that obviously is ultimately going to make it more difficult for victims to leave their abusive relationships because, you know, leaving an abusive partner often involves secretly saving money, which will be more difficult if victims begin to lose their jobs. And and I was curious if you could speak about that. 
Absolutely. There's so much, um, you know, so many survivors say the the lack of stable finances is the one thing that keeps them in abusive relationships. And so when the economy suffers, so do the lives of survivors. And, you know, there are, while we know that domestic violence can virtually touch any one of us, and it doesn't matter how poor or how wealthy, we know that wealthier women tend to have more resources to weather the storm. Mm-hmm. And these are these are terrible, gross uh, generalizations. Right. So <laughs> it's okay. For what that's worth. Yeah. But, but for poorer women who are already worried about money, who might be working two or three jobs just in an effort to save money to leave in a poor economy, we can be talking about lost wages, um, a drying up of jobs, uh, needing to go on public benefits. Uh, none of those things lead women to st- sustainability or self-sufficiency. And so I do worry about that. What I will say is there is a little silver lining opening up. And I uh, just today have received three different inquiries from uh, one from a foundation and two from private donors who have said, listen, I've already given you my gift, but you know, I'm worried about what this situation with the coronavirus and the economy is going to mean for the lives of people that you serve. You know, how can I help? And so that's the other wonderful thing is that the private sector is stepping up as well as, you know, many in the public sector. Mm -hmm. And so what we're actively thinking about the center is what are survivors going to need and how can we build some some a a fund specifically for that to help women with the first and last month's rent to help them with rent Mm -hmm. payments uh, to help them keep their car on the road so they can get to get jobs and make sure that they know all the resources that are available to them that can can help What, you know, I didn't even, well, I, I know about, obviously, the Jeannie Geiger Crisis Center, but, you know, I didn't even, just sort of assuming that everyone does know, well, everyone doesn't know. So talk about your, your center a little bit. Sure. Uh, we are almost 40 years old. Our mission is to empower individuals and engage communities to end domestic violence. And when I think about our work, when I describe it, there are really four pillars of our organization. One is in kind of the beating heart of the organization is our survivor services. And so this is for anything from crisis intervention to answering the hotline, to support groups, to meeting with advocates to help them with whatever need uh, the the victim and their children have. Um, it is ongoing counseling and legal services. You know, we know that a second to financial stability, the next thing that women really need is, an, is a lawyer. And so we have those services. We also believe that we would not be doing our job if we weren't also trying to be part of that village that supports and helps raise young people. And we think that there are so many confusing uh, messages about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman that we are really actively working in the schools to help 
help answer those questions and help young people have the skills and tools they need to make healthy decisions about their lives and to be whole, to be everything that they are, not just one, you know, small part of who they are, like how do they look or are they tough? Um, so you educate the, so you're educating the public as well. Yes, and and we're also breaking the kind of the intergenerational cycles of abuse. And so we know that a lot of kids, when they're in school, those what they're seeing and experiencing at home, mm-hmm. uh, they fo- follows them into the classroom. So it also gives us an opportunity to help identify those kids who might need some services that aren't um, that aren't receiving them. And then the other thing I, you know, we, we created a model called the domestic violence high risk team model. And this is a homicide prevention uh, program that we created after the murder of one of our uh, clients. And she was someone who said, I just can never go back into a shelter. I've got two girls and they want to be in their home and see their friends and family. And they want to go back to school and I just can't do this. And you guys need to like work with the police and and get him away from me and so despite everyone's best efforts uh the system failed and uh the her husband did shoot and kill her and then killed himself and so left behind these two girls who were orphans and so we use that very painful time in the our the life of the center um and we discovered the um excuse me research from johns hopkins university that really identifies those uh factors that are in play right before a woman is killed or there's an attempted homicide and so we began to work in our own community in a different way with the courts and the police and survivors themselves and 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 others the healthcare system probation all of that and we use these risk assessments as a way to identify those who are most most in harm's way which i think is a very pertinent thing to be talking about right now and we we surround the survivor and offer very quick access to a whole array of services while the criminal justice um, partners are holding him accountable and so that we do that not only across massachusetts but we have uh, implemented this in over 100 jurisdictions across the nation as well so that's uh, a third piece that we're doing and lastly the the fourth piece that we do is abuser intervention program and so it's it's the the official name is the intimate partner abuse education program and these um we offer 11 groups a week for men who have been court mandated to attend this 40 week two hour a week program that is intended to reduce the abuse against their partners and so that's kind of like the four four things that we are working on Mm -hmm. and um it's a it's a very challenging time to be doing all of that work at once and how do you run support groups where there's the social distancing are you doing it via zoom we are we're and and it's really interesting uh people are it's resonating with people more than i could have ever imagined and and i think that also speaks to wanting to stay connected to 
the communities and the supports that they build among themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, well, two things I want to ask you is it, it seems that the focus is more often than not that the abuse comes from the man. And that's not always the case. What, you know, is, is the profile of a woman who abuses a man different than that of a man who abuses a woman? Well, you know, so I don't think it was so, yeah, so your your use of the word profile is making me think that, um, so initially I thought, well, I don't really have a profile, but that's not true. What we have is uh, uh, the way that abusers uh, gain power and control in a relationship, and this can happen in any relationship, whether it's same sex or a heterosexual relationship and whether the abuser is male or female that it is about um, using that power and control to manipulate to bend someone else's will to your own and uh, women while while we do not have the same stats um, it most definitely hurts men as much as it hurts women it's as equally painful women tend to not kill and so there is an escalation that happens with uh, male violence that is not typical to happen in female violence the other piece is that uh, well I do have a stat and I think it's one in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence and um, and that's still continues to be this about the same over the last few years that has been the statistic by the cdc the other piece is just locally at the genie geiger crisis center um i would say roughly 10 percent of the adult survivors that we see every year are male and do you think there's that there are certain women that are more vulnerable um because you know Sometimes I question that, that not so much, you know, I, I, um, Leslie Morgan Steiner, she wrote a book, I can't mm -hmm. remember, but she was actually a guest on my show a while back when you were on it as well back, maybe uh, close to a year ago. Um, uh, Crazy Love, that was the name of her book. Mm -hmm. And um, like yourself, I, you know, it just doesn't seem like someone who would would even tolerate that. So how does it come about that a woman becomes a victim or a man? But we'll stick with women for now. Okay. Uh, and so you're right. You know, sometimes people are raised in, in a way and come into adulthood without the, the tools they need to recognize uh, some kind of red flags in someone's behavior. And, you know, so there, that is at play. But the truth is, it can happen to anyone at any time. And um, that they're very seductive and manipulative. And um, and so it's, it's really tough. So I, I liken this to that, that story about the frogs, right? You can put a frog in a cold thing of water and turn the heat up over time. And it doesn't realize that it's about to get boil and because the temperature rising is so slow and so incremental and it, it happens over time. I think of abuse in the same way. If I went on a date with someone and he slapped me in the face, you know, as I paid the bill, uh, I'm, 
date number two would never happen. But if that doesn't happen until a year into your relationship and you've had these magnificent highs and just these great, you know, what felt like very loving, intimate moments. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then you're confronted by that behavior. It is so confusing. And, but what is usually happening before physical abuse is that, that very slow, um, behavior that's kind of always on, it's always on the back burner, that pilot lit, that pilot flame is always lit, where there's just this subtle putting down, this subtle kind of um, emotional abuse, and and it happens over time, and that is, that's how it happens, and then oftentimes by the time a woman realizes that she's they, not crazy, get, right? Yeah, that she's not crazy. She, they've got kids. They've got a mortgage. Uh, you know, their lives are so intertwined. It's really hard to figure out how do I untangle myself from this? And is this, is this something, am I making too much of it? Mm-hmm. Is this real? Is this very, is this really happening? Right. And um, so it takes that kind of yeah. love, yeah. that loving intervention from friends and family sometimes advocates or anyone Mm -hmm. to say you know i I just notice things that make me feel uncomfortable and how how are you doing Mm -hmm. right right suzanne we just have about three minutes left and i just want to make sure that there isn't anything that i haven't asked you or anything that you would like to share with our audience before we say goodbye um I think I should give a hotline call number because okay. if anyone's listening yep. and they want to talk to someone either about getting some services or if you have a friend or family member or coworker, someone that you're concerned about and would just like to talk to someone about what you could say or do to be helpful, um, our 24-hour confidential hotline is 978-388-1888. And do you, so this is 24 hours, and are you, are you feeling like you have a need for more uh, volunteers right now to help out with this? Volunteers, no. We've actually had to, um, maybe all of our volunteers are really directed toward the hotline right now. Before, they were standing with women in court. They right. were working with children. They were yeah. doing all this face-to-face stuff. So right. we've had to really kind of put the nail on that. No, if there are other ways that people can find to help, you know, one of the things that we're asking people to do is consider uh, donating a gift card, mm. um, either a Visa gift card or mm. uh, food. You know, I think what's particularly challenging is when people are being asked, you know, hey, just go to the grocery store once or once a week or maybe once every two weeks for a woman who just doesn't have the financial resources. It's hard to go with a $50 gift card from Market Basket. So we're asking people um, to to donate what they can, if Mm -hmm. they can. Mm -hmm. And uh, any donations could be mailed to 2 Harris Street in Newburyport, Mass., and um, we will make sure they get to survivors who are needing to keep themselves and their children fed and healthy. Okay. All right. Well, Suzanne, thank you so, so much for being on Talk with Francesca and sharing this so vital information. It is it is just so important, and, and hopefully uh, we'll all get through this and, and get to the other side, and, and hopefully there'll be some silver lining somewhere. So thanks again for being on Talk with Francesca. 
Thank you, Francesca. All right, Suzanne. All right, we've got to wrap things up and say goodbye. I hope that you were able to to get some great information this evening on Talk with Francesca about domestic violence during this very, very difficult time with COVID-19. Everybody stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Make it a great week.